Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 69. Nice. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we talked about the origins of food with the gods, what a hangi is and how it worked, and a bunch of stuff on hakari, feasts. This time, we're going to talk about hunting, in particular manu, birds, but also kiori and kuri, rats and dogs. We'll also talk a bit about how various fish and veggies were cooked as well. Just like with fishing, observing the habits of birds and when those habits tended to happen was key in knowing how to catch them. One of the more famous habits is of kiridu, who eat fermented berries, resulting in them getting a bit drunk and thus making them easier to catch. Eating meadow berries in particular would make them quite thirsty, something that hunters could exploit by placing a wakamanu or wakakiridu nearby. These were wooden troughs that would be filled with water and left in the area for a few days to allow the birds to get used to drinking from them. This is basically what we do today when trying to catch rats, stoats, or most other animals really, in a process called pre-feeding. Once the kiriru were used to the wakamanu, snares would be set on it to catch them next time they went for a drink. Another slightly different method, called tutu, would involve the hunter sitting on a small platform in the branches of a fruit-bearing tree. A perch would be attached to the platform and a snare placed on the perch. The hunter would hold the other end of the snare, which they would pull when a bird decided to take a bit of a rest on the perch. Apparently, 200 birds could be caught using this method a day, so it was pretty effective. There were two main methods of using snares, takari and tahe. Takari is what we were just talking about, a perch with a single snare with someone waiting to give it a tug. This method could then be further broken down based on the three types of snares that were used, mutu, tumu and pewa. Mutu snares were used on both the ground and in trees. The mutu itself would be made with a single piece of wood that would be an uppercase L or T shape, meaning there was a horizontal perch and a vertical post. The snare would be looped and draped over the perch and then placed in a position for the bird to come rest on it. Like before, when the bird sat on the perch, the snare was pulled and the bird caught. The bird could then be lowered, killed, and the snare reset. Where mutu were a bit more man-made, Tumu were a bit more natural. A small branch would be cut in two lengthways and placed into a tree or bush to allow it to grow. This would result in two branches growing from the original, forming a kind of oval shape, where the snare would be placed. Once again, the bird would land on the branch, the snare pulled, and the bird would be pegged to the ground to keep it there while the hunter continued trapping. This method was quite popular, particularly with Nati Rokawa, as it was easier to make than mutu or pewa snares. Speaking of which, unlike the first two, the pewa used a lure of berries or a nectar-bearing flower to attract the birds into their doom. Of course, depending on what kind of lure you used depended on what you were trying to catch. For example, if you wanted to catch tui, you would use rata flowers. Other than this, the method was roughly the same as the tumu method. 
the one thing that all of these snare types had was that the hunter had to be present to be able to spring the trap and catch the bird, which was time consuming and probably a bit boring at times. However, the Tahe method didn't require anyone to be holding the other end of the snare, as it was able to work on its own and only needed to be checked twice a day. The way it worked was that some slip-knotted snares were attached to a rope or branch that would allow them to be suspended between a couple of other branches. As normal, the birds would land on the branch and get caught, but unlike the other methods which had the birds get caught around the feet, this method has the birds stick their heads into the noose, which would tighten as they struggled to get out. Presumably, this required some strategy when placing the snares, to ensure the birds could put their heads through the nooses, or somehow encourage them to do so. The only bird this method wasn't good for was Kaka, who have very sharp beaks that they use to rip the bark off trees, or in this case, tear through the snares. Along with snares, spears were also used to catch manu. The spears would have points made of bone, hardwood, ponamu, or even the barbs of stingray. These spears were often pretty large, ranging from 6 to 11 metres long, meaning they were dragged along the ground when they were being transported, because they're just so bloody huge. The way they worked would be to lean them against a branch until a bird came near on the perch, at which point the spear would be thrust forward. Smaller spears, about 3 to 4 metres long, were also used, but they were for smaller scale hunting. There were some methods that were specific to certain species too, given their size, shape and general behaviour. For instance, kiridu were often caught in summer, partially because they were quite fat at that time, but also because they would be a bit, well, inebriated from eating fermented berries, which would naturally make them much easier to catch. Because of this, the food that birds eat, in this case meadow berries, was observed closely, so that when they were ripe, Māori knew that it was time to hunt kiridu. A slightly more exciting method was that used to catch kaka, which would involve training one of them to be tame and call out to his friends, all while it was bound to a perch so it couldn't escape. It would actually be bound with a bone ring around its leg attached to some rope. As the bird called out, it would attract other kaka, as they're quite social animals. When a victim got close, the hunter, who was hiding in a nearby bush, would jump out and hit it with a stick, snare it with a noose, or just grab it with his hands. Tui would be similarly caught, but in the winter. In the early hours of the morning, they would be too cold to let their feet open quickly when danger presented itself, to let go of the branch they were perched on and fly away. The danger in this case being a hunter just running out and grabbing them with their hands. Alternatively, the hunter would just shake the tree and the sleepy tui would just fall out, landing on the ground in a panic, and in that panic they could be scooped up. Titi, mutton bird, is another interesting one. You actually heard a brief description of it if you listened to episode 66, in the story about Titahi o Terangi and his abandonment on Fakari White Island. When the titi were returning in the evening to their nests, a net would be strung up between two poles and a fire lit to attract them. The net would be laid on the ground until the birds got close, which is when the net would be lifted to catch them. Interestingly, if a bird hit the poles of the net, 
it was considered a tohu that the hunt would be bad, and it would often be called off from that point. As we have mentioned in the past, albatross, gulls and mollymorks would be caught using curved wooden hooks with bone barbs. One bird we haven't talked much about is the huia, which is now extinct. Unlike most other birds, which were taken for their meat as well as their bones and feathers, huia were pretty much exclusively taken for their feathers and beaks, due to how tapu they were. Part of this is that their feathers were a symbol of being a rangatira, of chieftainship, and you will often find pictures of people of high rank wearing huia feathers in their hair. The beaks, particularly the female beaks, because they're these nice big curved ones you're probably familiar with, were used in earrings and necklaces, and sometimes the skins would be worn in their entirety around the neck. You also hear stories about some chiefs having huia as pets. On that thread, no hunter was complete without his faithful kuri, or at least depending on what kind of bird they were trying to catch. Dogs were used to mostly catch ground-dwelling birds, things like kiwi, weka, pukeko, and the like. Since none of these birds had to contend with mammals who use smell as a primary means of hunting, they didn't evolve to, well, not have a smell. In fact, the kākāpō is quite famously very smelly. Though, in saying that, dogs weren't really used to sniff out birds. In the case of kiwi hunters, they would imitate the whistling call, and when the bird was close, the kuri would be released to catch it. For pūkeko, beaters were used to flush them out of the swamps that they liked to live in, which would tire them out and allow the dogs to chase them down. Manu weren't the only thing that Māori were hunting. We have mentioned a couple of times that kiori were caught and preserved as well. When Māori first arrived in Aotearoa, they brought the Pacific rat with them unintentionally. So, before Europeans arrived, that was the only rat species here. However, after Europeans turned up, the black or ship's rat and the Norway rat managed to get here as well. I just want to clarify that when I say kiori, which can be used as a broad word for any species of rat or even mouse, I am specifically referring to the Pacific rat, regardless of what period we're talking about. This is due to my conservation background, where we often need to distinguish between different species, and kiori has kinda just become the common name for the Pacific rat. Just making sure that we're all on the same page. Kiori were hunted by tracking them through the lines they left in the ground. They would often walk in single file along ridge lines, using the same path multiple times, which would naturally just wear it down. These tracks were called ara kiori, and would often be lined with tafiti kiori, rat traps. Specifically, these would be spring traps and pit traps. Spring traps, of course, didn't contain modern springs, but they did use springy materials to allow them to have that quick action, usually something like supplejack. Depending on the type of trap, the idea would be to make a little cone shape out of manuka bark, and to put a little muka noose inside with some bait. The noose would be tied to a piece of bent supplejack, which was kept under pressure, so that when the rat chewed through the bit of lure, which covered some string, it would snap up and tie the noose around the neck of the rat and strangle it. Usually, the trap was baited with either kumara or berries. Basically, something sweet that the rats would like to eat. Pit traps were more or less what they set on the tin. 
A hole would be dug and some bait suspended above it so that when the rats tried to reach out for it or jump for it, they would fall into the hole and be unable to get out. Once a rat was caught, it would be eaten fairly quickly, usually by putting it over a fire or in a hungi. Otherwise, they were stored in gourds with their own fat to preserve them. Kiore huahua, preserved rat, was a delicacy that was often saved for important occasions. There aren't many kiori around today, they were mostly outcompeted by their much larger European cousins. But there are some around, particularly on the hen and chicken islands, where they are a protected species. Yes, you did hear me correctly, these rats are considered a protected species on these islands, which is just northwest of Great Barrier Island. And so, this kinda leads us into something that we haven't talked much about preserving food. Naturally, this was very important for ensuring the longevity of food and ensuring that there would be something to eat during the months when food didn't grow, or was still growing. Preserving could be as simple as storing the food in a particular way, such as kumara in rua. Otherwise, it could be smoking or drying. For example, tuna, eels, and other fish would be cleaned, boned and put on a stick and leant over some embers to cook and smoke. Once done, it would be hung up to dry and placed in a pātaka, where they would be also hung up so that the airflow would stop them from getting damp and mouldy. When birds or fish were smoked, it was usually done with manuka wood, as it had a pretty nice flavour, and would be done over a large open fire if they were trying to smoke a lot of stuff. If it was only a small amount, the embers could be put into a small hole in the ground, and the food hung over them with a damp mat covering the hole, which would keep all the smoke in. Smoking was quite useful in areas that were a bit colder and damper. But if you lived somewhere warm, as many Māori did in the Upper North Island, just hanging up to dry in the sun was a viable and low-effort way to preserve food. And it wasn't just used for meat. Berries, seaweed, and veg could also be dried out, But, depending on the size of the meat or veg you were trying to preserve, a combo of smoking and drying would usually be used. Similar to kiori, smaller birds would often be eaten fresh, with larger ones being gutted and boned before being put into cold water and then dried and cooked. As the bird was cooked, the fat would be collected in a wooden trough, which would then be used to preserve the bird in a gourd. One exception to this rule was titi, mutton bird. They were cooked in their own fat and then stored in bags made of rimurapa, bull kelp, which in turn were stored in harakekeketi. The kelp was also sun-dried just to add a bit of extra preservation before they were weaved into the bags, known as poha. Inside the kelp bags they have a honeycomb structure that traps air, which would help the titi keep for about three years or so. Poha could also be used to preserve seals, which were prepared in a similar manner to titi. But instead of being put in a kete, they were buried in the sand on a beach, where they would keep pretty much indefinitely. Other, a bit more out there uses of rimurapa was to carry fresh water, move live shellfish from one place to another to allow them to propagate, or used as a sort of wetsuit that would protect the body, or sandals to protect the feet while gathering shellfish or fishing. The other type of preserving that we haven't mentioned much is fermentation. This was mostly used for things like crayfish to make kaura mara, 
This would be where the coda would be soaked in a flowing stream, for about three days if the water was warm, or five days if it was a bit colder. The gist of this was to make the flesh soft and have the shell come away easily. Most would proceed onto another step, but some would just eat it raw as is. Though this was rare, as quote, the smell was worse than the taste, end quote. If they wanted to move on to the next step though, the cray would be separated into three parts, the hiku, papa and tuki, legs, body and tail. These would be placed on a platform to dry for a day. After this, the flesh would be beaten, dried again, beaten again, cooked in probably a hangi, and then dried again, after which they would be placed in baskets to keep for up to a year. Usually, the body was eaten first, with the legs and tail saved for special occasions. Hiroa talks about how tasty kodo prepared in this way was, but that it made you rather thirsty while eating it. He talks about a story of an attack on a fort at Pakurangi in Northland, where the garrison were given a gift of preserved crayfish, and not long after, the fort was put under siege, cutting off the water supply. Apparently, this made the soldiers so insane with thirst that they broke through the siege lines and jumped into the water, covered in as many clothes as they could wear or carry. They would then run back, and, assuming they weren't captured or killed along the way, would squeeze the water out of their clothes. Due to this phenomena, Hiroa calls the battle Pureu Maku, the battle of the wet garments. Māori also used the stream method to ferment and preserve other species of fish as well, but interestingly, so was corn when it was brought to Aotearoa. However, instead of leaving the corn, or sometimes maize, in the stream for a few days, it would be left in a kite for about six weeks. The kernels would be then taken off the cob and mashed together to make a paste that was kind of like hummus or porridge, which could be eaten hot or cold. This version was called kangna piro, fermented corn, but there were other slight variations, such as cooking with cleaned ash and then boiled, called kanga pangarehu, in which the swollen kernels would be eaten with sugar, cream or milk. Again, kind of like porridges today. Modern versions of this use baking soda instead of the pangarehu, the ash. Another version was kangawaru, which was grated corn mashed with kumara or sugar, and then wrapped in corn husks to be boiled or cooked in a hangi. This was apparently sweet and kind of dessert-like. No matter how the kanga was fermented though, much like the koda, it had a strong, pungent smell. So much so, that in 1964, it was described as having, quote, an unholy fragrance, end quote. Next time, we talk about a variety of different plants and fungi that were eaten by Māori and how they were cooked, covering food from raupo to basket fungus. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. 
This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch, or give us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairetu watu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>